Hey listeners, and welcome back to the second installment of the On the Shoulders of Giants podcast. First, I just wanted to say thank you very much to all the people that asked me when the podcast will be back on air. While taking the summer off was necessary, it does mean a lot to me to know that I do have a genuine following, and that it's not just my mom, dad, or siblings that subscribe to the show. The first season of the On the Shoulders of Giants podcast is hard to describe in a few words, but the adjectives that come to mind are awe-inspiring, exhilarating, uplifting, stimulating, thought-provoking, and even at times controversial. Maybe I should just describe it in my native Shona language. That might do it justice. Meaning, it was badass. As I start the second season of the On the Shoulders of Giants podcast, I decided to pay homage to the first season of the show by doing a few reviews of the best clips of the interviews I had. I couldn't fit them all into one show, and so I split them into two shows. Please enjoy the second of two parts of the best of the On the Shoulders of Giants podcast. I'm Tinotenda Charles Rutanira, and this is the podcast On the Shoulders of Giants, where we get to chat with incredibly inspiring people who have broken the status quo or faced down adversity or taken the road less traveled and positively impacted the lives of other people. We get to hear their stories and gain knowledge and insights into how their professional and personal lives mix every day to create lessons and insights for others to follow. Because the only way to really grow is by building on previous discoveries. And only then can we truly see further by standing on the shoulders of giants. I welcome to the show Keisha Ram, a politician and member of the Democratic Party who holds the distinction of being the first ever minority student body president at the University of Vermont, as well as the youngest ever person to be voted into the Vermont House of Representatives. So many of us have a, a journey like that that has us striking down roots in unaccustomed earth, as Jimbo Lahiri would say in her books about immigrant families. Um, and, you know, my story begins with family in parts of what is now Russia and what is now Pakistan. And my parents, uh, you know, a, a woman from Chicago and a, and a man from um, parts of northern India found each other at UCLA and had three kids and really worked hard uh, to ensure that their kids had access to education, just like you said about your father and, you know, um, that people really took seriously how they gave back to their community and um, the broader discourse in society. I wanted myself an environment where I felt like part of a community that was closer, that was more human scale. And so I looked around the country and I had scholarships to Alaska, to British Columbia, to New England. You can tell I was crazy and I wanted somewhere cold <laughs> and with seasons. And um, I fell in love 
with Vermont and, and not just the sense of place and the nature and the pastoral scenes that everybody knows so well that Vermont feels like living in a postcard, but the sense of community and the closeness that I got in my relationships with people so quickly. Um, and that has really stayed with me. I, I know I made the right decision. I spent a long time thinking, who is like me, this, you know, this daughter of one immigrant and one, one Jewish woman from Chicago? You know, it's a really complicated life story. And when I was a sophomore at the University of Vermont, I still felt that way, that it was more complicated than blessed, you know, that it was hard to explain to people why I looked the way I did and who I was and what my foundation in life was. And then something really amazing happened. Um, Bernie Sanders was running for the U.S. Senate for the first time as an independent, and uh, he invited a rock star senator from Illinois to come kick off his big rally at UVM, University of Vermont, where he wanted thousands of people to come out, and thousands of people did come out. And I didn't know much about who this other person was, except that he was gaining a lot of fame around the country. And Bernie's team asked me if I would introduce the whole event. They wanted a young woman, and a woman of color was very exciting, because otherwise they had all men on stage. So you know, there I was, kicking off this event, talking about why it's so important for young people to get involved in politics, from climate change to student debt. We need to have a voice at the table. The mayor spoke, then candidate for Congress Peter Welch spoke, Bernie spoke, and this rock star senator got up to speak. And he started talking about the arc of the moral universe bending toward justice. And he talked about having a father from Kenya and a mother from Kansas. And I thought, I have a father from India and a mother from Illinois, and I never heard a story like mine told in mainstream American politics. And then he said, and I have this funny name no one can pronounce. And I thought, wow, so do I. People are always trying to add a dollar sign and you know, all those kind of things. And then he turned around and he said, and Keisha, you made an outstanding presentation. Bernie, if you don't behave yourself, we may run her for the Senate instead of you. And that man's name was Barack Obama. And it was the first time anyone had encouraged me to run for office. And in 2006, I thought, if there's a place for someone like him in politics, with a father from Kenya and a mother from Kansas, maybe there's a place for someone like me. And I'm proud that we shared the same ballot in 2008. In the fall of 2006, I went to work for Diane Feinstein from California in the U.S. Senate. I wanted to work for a woman, and I really wanted to see what that experience would be like to actually be in Washington, where these big decisions are made. I had been pretty cynical up until that point. And when I got there, I told the other interns in the office my story of meeting Barack Obama. So they all said, we all want to go meet him at his constituent breakfast, and you know him. You have to take us. I said, I don't really know him. He probably won't remember me. And uh, we go to the constituent breakfast anyway, and I'm in the front of this group of interns, and I look at, at Senator Obama, and I say, you know, you probably don't remember me, but, and I had much more to say, and he turned to Dick Durbin, and he said, I met this young woman in Vermont earlier in the year. She is so impressive. She's going to be in the Senate one day. What was your name, Keisha? I was speechless, obviously. And uh, for me, what that says is he's not just a good politician. He's not just somebody who remembers people because it may benefit him one day. He's somebody who elevates people around the country doing good work. That is the spirit of a community organizer, somebody who says, that's someone who can inspire people. 
And if I'm ever president or I'm ever leading this country, I can't do it all by myself. I need to find the leaders and the helpers and the people who make a difference, and I need to elevate them. And that's the kind of person he is, and it taught me a lot about what true leadership looks like. The state of Vermont is changing. You know, it's becoming more multicultural. Over um, 90% of the new growth in population in Vermont is people of color. And when I thought to myself, just like that young woman, you know, it's really hard to be in Vermont. I stick out a lot. I don't know if I fit in here. I don't know if people are accepting me as I would start in college. Soon I realized that there was a real need for people who could build bridges and who could be that voice. And, you know, it meant a lot to me to say, I can make a difference in Vermont by virtue of who I am, not in spite of it. And I can see all the assets I bring to the table as someone who grew up in my Indian immigrant father's restaurant where I watched him struggle dealing with authorities and the health department and knowing that there are immigrant businesses that are opening here where they need the same kind of support from somebody who's maybe one generation further along, has been here a little bit longer, knows the language, let's say, and can really help build those bridges. And, you know, I have to say it feels incredibly binary right now at the national level, but 75% or more of our decisions about the environment or taxes or any number of things that affect our daily lives are made at the local and state level. And so for people to really get involved at the local level, I think they'll see that there's, you know, a whole other world of folks just trying to get along and not make it such a binary system. So, you know, I encourage people to have faith and for the time being to try to change the parties from within. Otherwise, if we don't shape the change, the change will shape us. In closing, I've got a question that I ask all of my guests, and it goes like this. If you could travel back in time and have a conversation with a younger version of yourself, what words of wisdom would you say to yourself and why? I think what I would say is what a lot of people said to me on the campaign trail. They would say, you know, you're so so passionate, so willing to explore ideas, so willing to say yes to things, even if you don't have the answer, that you'll find it, that you'll be intellectually curious, that you'll, you know, keep wanting to meet people and hear their stories and solve their problems. And don't ever lose that because at some point it feels like, at a certain age, you give up or you just think, you know, you can't make the difference that you wanted to make. And just to keep remembering um, to be myself, to be curious, to explore, and to always put as much energy and passion into everything that I do. I welcome to the show Andrea Gagne of 14th Star Brewing, a veteran-owned craft brewery in St. Albans, Vermont. The company was founded by two Army War veterans that served time in Iraq and Afghanistan, who wrote the business plan during downtime between patrols. It's not often you have the intersection of war and beer culminating in a happy ending. Uh, we grew up right around here in Franklin County, Vermont, um, in a little town called Highgate, which is about 10 minutes north of St. Albans. Um, our father was um, in the Vermont Army National Guard. That was his career. Pretty much most of our childhood, um, we had uh, a military presence in our lives. But we, we always had uh, this role model of, of our father, who was an extremely hard worker. Even in his small apartment in Rutland, he was 
brewing beer um, to the point where he really didn't have any furniture in, in the apartment. It was basically a bed and a chair, and everything else was brewing equipment. <laughs> and he was getting lots of positive feedback from his friends and, and family members that were trying his beers. Um, and then they deployed to Afghanistan. And when they were there, one of the things that they did just to pass time was to toss around ideas of what they wanted to do when they retired from the military. And, and one of the things that they came up with was, let's start a brewery. So they, they decided they were going to just create the mental exercise of, of developing a business plan. Um, it was mostly for them to, to keep their minds busy and to occupy, you know, to keep exercising their brains. And, right. um, and they had very, very little access to any factual information when they were over there. So <laughs> it's kind of a, a, a joke here that, the business plan for this company was created with a lot of made-up fictitious numbers. But when they came back to Vermont, they started looking into, was this an actual viable um, opportunity for them? And one of the things to know is we had, uh, there was a teacher that I had in high school who coincidentally was his best friend's father um, all through high school, uh, who was dying of cancer. And one of the lessons that Stephen took from him was that you know, our time here is short. So if mm. there's something that, that you're passionate about that you really want to do, don't put it off. You know, you, tomorrow's never promised to anyone. We received our manufacturer's license from the state of Vermont in May of 2012. We were brewing on equipment that was constructed out of maple sugaring, uh, maple sap collection tanks. Yes, it was uh, our father. So when our father retired from the military, he picked up a second career as a maple syrup producer uh, and broker here in St. Albans and was pretty successful with it. And um, so when Stephen wanted to start the brewery, you know, he started looking at some of the design of the, the, the collection tanks and thought, wow, you know, with just some heating elements and, and, and a few other modifications, we could actually use this. Uh, and so that's what he did. He, he handmade all of the brewing equipment. From the very beginning, have decided to help some veteran charities along the way. Um, from the very beginning, have been involved with Purple Hearts Reunited, um, which is an organization that was started by another local soldier by the name of Zach Fike. Our Valor, which is the, our flagship beer, a portion of the proceeds from every single batch of that that we make goes to support Purple Hearts Reunited, uh, as well as our our tap room has hosted their annual Calcutta, and we do random fund fundraisers here and there um, where a portion of the proceeds will go to Purple Hearts Reunited because what he's doing um, just has such an impact on so many people. We both grew up in this area. This is, you know, this is where where we grew up. This is where. As teenagers, we hung out, and this is where we chose to raise our families. So we definitely have a responsibility to this community um, and, and to every community that we're in, whether it's our veteran community, our local St. Albans community, or the state of Vermont as a whole. We've, we've always wanted to make sure that no matter what we do, we're providing something back to those that provide us with the opportunity to do what we love to do. You know, without our consumers, we can't brew beer. Without the people that, that support us and follow our story and, and share our beers with other people, and 
there's a responsibility that we have to, to give back to them because they've given us so much. What words of wisdom would you say to yourself? Enjoy the ride. It's funny, when I, when, when I look back at my time at the pharmaceutical company, there were many, many times where I put in for other opportunities and was, for one reason or another, uh, they, were, they were given to someone else. And I remember being hurt and upset and angry and, and you know, all of those emotions. However, all of those opportunities that, are, that, that I was passed on led me to where I am today. So don't spend a lot of time regretting or, or, um, or being upset and angry. There's a reason why what didn't happen didn't happen. Hmm. Just preparing you for what's going to happen. I welcome to the show Olympic gold medalist and record-tying mogul skier Hannah Kearney to talk about the highs and lows of being a professional athlete. I had no choice in starting skiing. It was a family activity, and I was so young that I actually do not remember learning how to ski. My parent, neither of my parents grew up skiing either. My mom's from Montreal and my dad's from Pennsylvania. Um, when they married, they kind of moved to the middle, which happened to be Vermont. Um, <laughs> and they had, picked, they had picked up skiing later in their life, and I think they enjoyed it enough that they thought um, we should teach our kids young. Um, we had horses in our backyard, and my parents used to take, uh, we had a draft horse, and they took her horse halter, and they put my body inside of the horse halter, and then just kind of let me go down the hill, holding me back with a lead line, uh, like a leash, basically. And now they sell harnesses for this sort of thing, specifically for skiing, but back in the day, they did not. So that is how I learned how to ski. How to ski. I think that when I look back at my childhood and the way my parents supported me, it, it really was the perfect balance. I never, ever felt pressured. I'm sure I got into arguments with parents about either not wanting to do something um, yeah, or wanting to quit. And they were always really reasonable about it. It was They encouraged me. Um, I was a shy kid. And so my mom actually bribed me into trying both soccer <laughs> and track. I think it was a pair of running shoes and a pair of soccer shorts. And she's like, all it was, it was just the only commitment was that I had to go for a full day or at one track meet and one soccer practice. I just had to try it. And then with skiing... Again, I think it was a similar balance. They could tell I loved it, and they made a lot of sacrifices for me. I mean, talk about giving up your your life, your winter life, certainly, to drive my brother to hockey practices and games and me to ski competitions and ski practices. I mean, it was my parents did not see each other at all in the winter because we were just on separate paths. And financially, skiing is an incredibly expensive sport, so they helped me write letters and put together a resume. And we're talking about an 11 or 12-year-old kid here putting together a resume. It really was just wow. a report card from <laughs> from school, but just because they saw that it was important to me, but it never felt like, they never pressured me to go to a ski academy. I think they thought that I was talented, and they, they easily could have said, you should really focus on this, but never once did I feel that, that pressure um, at all. So thank you, Mom and Dad. In 2002, when I was a sophomore in high school, but before I was on the U.S. ski team, I got a phone call in January that said, it was from someone on the U.S. ski team, and they said, uh, you've probably heard where the Salt Lake City is hosting the Olympics in a month, and we're looking for four runners, um, which is the person who comes down the course before the competition for the judges to test out their scoring and to make sure the timing works. Um, so it's sort of an honor, but it's, you don't, you're not part of the competition. They had the ski team coaches said, we think that you could be good in the future. We'd love for you to come and four run wow. and just 
watch the Olympic Games. And, oh, I remember crying for like 24 hours straight. I was so excited. Um, I, I didn't even realize I there was a forerunner to begin with. So. <laughs> yeah, they, cool. that's not the type of thing anyone ever – usually it's like at a regular competition, it's like the local kids who were from that mountain will do it. Um, but, of course, the Olympics, it's a big honor. And so yeah. it was – I got to do that. And in turn, I got to see my first – that was my first international um, high-level skiing competition I'd ever watched. And I remember thinking, like, oh, my gosh, they're so good. But then also at the same time being like, well, they're not, I mean, yeah, they're really good. They're going a lot faster than I am, kind of more aggressive. But I saw what it was going to take, and I thought it all of a sudden it became much more realistic. And I actually, I qualified for the ski team a month after that. And I think it was all because I saw it, and then I went home, I learned a new trick. I kind of changed my style of skiing a little bit. And I think I also had the confidence that had been instilled in me from their, their vote of confidence when they said, we'd like to select you as the athlete to do this. And so that was 2002. My only previous experience besides seeing it um, live in 2002 was from watching it on TV. And when you're actually there competing, it's nothing like it is on TV. It's actually much more of a hassle. You're going through metal detectors, and you're wearing these big credentials, and there's security guards everywhere. It's, it's intimidating, and it's way different. In a sport like Molokina, it's so obscure. All of a sudden, the Olympics seems like such a big deal um, because it's different than anything else. So yeah. that, and I also... I tried to just be like, oh, it's just any other event. And I didn't really embrace the fact that it's actually quite different because millions of people are watching. Um, and I sort of, uh, I think that I tried to just deny its importance to me. I mean, I was also a 19-year-old, so there's some immaturity that plays a role, too. And so I just sort of kept it bottled it all up inside, like, just treat it like any other competition. And I actually felt, like, physically ill the whole time I was there. I was there. My, um, looking back, I also didn't prepare properly. I had graduated high school the year before, so I spent a year kind of not training, not on purpose, but I all of a sudden didn't have soccer and track in my life anymore, and I was just a little bit, I was a little bit lost. Skiing was all, the only thing in my life, and I wasn't used to that. I was used to balancing it. So it was a combination of not really being adequately prepared, um, and it was also, the numbers were just a very difficult thing to prepare for, so uh, mentally. So I was not physically or mentally prepared. Um, in my qualifying run, I landed my top jump. I hit a mogul really abruptly, like probably too stiffly, and it like threw me out of the course. And so, yeah, I got third to last place. And unfortunately, you have to wait four more years um, if you don't have a, a good day. Cause it can all be over in a split second, which is, it's, which is true to most Olympic sports, and it, which is why it's so fascinating to watch and why there's so many human stories, um, because we all train, every athlete trains really, really hard, and it, if there's glory or defeat, um, within a moment of each other. The, probably the best moment was, and it was 24 hours after I'd actually won, um, maybe 20 hours, uh, was actually getting the medal because that, it symbolizes everything. And the medal ceremony is so special. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Olympic event is, of course, special, but it's, we also compete every week um, for the four years in between. So the skills and the judges and the course and the competitors and your performance are all really similar. It's, it's familiar, I should say. Um, the medal ceremony is like, whoa, I'm getting rewarded for something. I've been set this goal and this is sort of the, the pinnacle. And so the, award, the actual medal and the awards there are many are pretty amazing. It's a moment I will never forget. And at the same time, I can never really exactly remember how it went. Yeah. It was just a blur of emotion <laughs> and tears. And, and the national anthem is not really that long, so it was pretty quick. Um, but it was, 
it, it was a, an amazing experience. I miss the training. I miss competing. I miss being good at something. Um, I don't miss the pain. I don't miss the nerves and the stress. I don't miss the travel necessarily. Um, and I am, I just, every time I watch sport, I think like, oh, I could still be doing it. But I remember how much emotional energy it took to get myself to do a backflip and how much commitment it took. And my last year competing, um, I finally started having knee pain for really the first time in my career. I had knee pain like mostly during training. And all of a sudden, losing the motivation to train because of pain was sort of a tipping point for me because I've never had problems with motivation for training. And um, I always wanted to be the last one out there and training the hardest. And all of a sudden, the pain created this, like, oh, it's not as fun. Um, and, that, and that changed everything. So retirement was a good decision. It feels good to use my brain. But it is kind of weird being a 30-year-old uh, junior in a college classroom with regular old 18, 19-year-olds. <laughs> um, I'm a marketing major for now, but I genuinely don't know what the heck I want to do with the, the rest of my life. What words of wisdom would you say to yourself and why? The ability to focus and train really hard. I think that that's something I didn't do because it was almost I'm guessing it was something to do with like if you if that's all you did, then you're putting yourself way more on the line. If it goes wrong, you have no fallback and you have no excuses. Um, whereas if you haven't trained that hard, then it's like, well, uh, that's why it didn't go well. Then train that hard. Um, but I wish I'd gotten to that place sooner because I think I be, could have become more consistent. And yes, it's scarier to give up something your 100% of your focus, um, but it's also much more rewarding. So I wish I'd done that then. Maybe I could have had even more success. I welcome to the show motivational speaker Murray Banks, who has inspired audiences to act on audacious goals or showcase passion in all aspects of their lives. Murray Banks started off as an educator. In 1982, he was honored as Vermont's Teacher of the Year for Physical Education, and in 1983, received the Outstanding Educator Award. At the time he was achieving educational honors, Murray was winning his first of four national championships as a triathlete and also working on an advanced degree in educational leadership and co-authoring a textbook. We played outdoors all the time. It, uh, rarely were we inside watching television, and I had uh, my parents were kind of depression era, tough, strong parents. So you went out to play, and you came in at dark. Children grow up to be a lot like their parents, and in that I mean what they value, uh, what they think, what they feel. Sometimes we don't see it until that child becomes an adult, 25, 30, 35 years old, and if they were brought up to be optimistic, hardworking, attention to detail, positive, cheerful, eventually the kids will come somewhat toward that. It doesn't guarantee it. And so that, I think that our childhood forms who we are in that the type of childhood you have reflects uh, the way you may end up living your life. Um, I remember being in a little league game and I got thrown out at second base. Maybe I was 12, 13 years old and I pouted my way back to the dugout, walking, slouching. And when the game was over, my father came up and said, don't you ever do that again. Meaning don't pout, don't whine. If you get thrown out, you run back to the dugout. That kind of attitude of pick yourself up, uh, get back in a game, literally, is, is really important. 
And so in the summertime, my wife was a teacher, we would, as soon as school was out, we'd take our two boys and go live on this little island. We were both runners. Every day I would swim a half mile to shore and go for a run. This is in the 80s. In the 80s, the sport of triathlon became prominent. So I would swim to shore and go for a run and come back, and I thought, wow, I could do a triathlon. So I borrowed a bike and did a triathlon, and I won it. And I thought, wow, that was cool. That was really fun. Uh, one thing led to another two years later. Won a big triathlon that qualified me to go to the Ironman Triathlon World Championship in Hawaii. Did really well there. Was one of the top finishers. Came back. Had a chance to get sponsored and race uh, more formally. Get paid to race. At the same time, I was trying to decide whether to leave education and get my doctorate or what to do. So I took a sabbatical for one year to be a professional athlete, work on my doctorate, and write that textbook with a professor at the University of Vermont. At the end of that year, I loved it so much, I didn't want to go back to the formalized instruction. Also, because Vermont is a very small place, going to the world championship, I got a lot of notoriety. Many of my colleagues, and you might remember I mentioned that I'd done a lot of workshops for my colleagues throughout Vermont and New England on a different type of teaching, they saw it on TV, saw it in the newspaper, called and said, hey, would you come to our school and do a talk to our students about motivation and goal setting and the triathlon and yada yada. And I did a few of those, and they were very successful. And somewhere in April, I realized, well, I could, I could uh, kind of formulate this into a way to make some money while I work on my doctorate, while I train as an athlete and race. So I, at the end of that sabbatical, I resigned from teaching and started speaking more and more. I think for maybe three or four years, I thought, well, that was fun for a year. Now i got to get a real job. <laughs> and then maybe, maybe three, four years into it, it just took off. I got to give a keynote address at a very large conference where people came from all over the United States and they all went back to their state. And the next thing you know, I was getting invited to their conferences and it just exploded. That decision was never clear immediately. It was never like I had an awakening. Aha, this is it. I'm going to go for it. It evolved slowly over three or four years. And like I said, I kept getting to a fork in the road. Ooh, wow. I could branch out in this direction. And it took a lot of intuition and kind of visioning, looking ahead. How could this work? Um, and so it didn't all of a sudden happen. Um, until that one speech that led to the many, many other speeches. And I, I just thought to myself, wow, I got to make this work. I got to get a business card. I got to get a brochure. Eventually, I got to get a website. I got to get a video. Um, once I got to that point where I said, wow, if I'm going to make money doing this and make a living, I have to get more formal, more professional. Yeah, once that happened, Tino, it was full speed ahead. Uh, I'm in the midst of a battle with a pretty advanced form of cancer. Um, three years ago, I was racing in the world championship for skiing in the master's category, by age category, 65 to 70. And I was in Italy racing the top skiers in the world, uh, going for gold in my age group, the whole deal. And a year and a half later, I've been diagnosed with this very advanced cancer and just shut me down and had surgery one year, radiation this year, and it just knocked me to what I thought was this most basic level of existence, not energy, vitality, and fitness, 
and my friends joked that, oh, good. Now we can all bike together, or oh good! Now, you can, now, now you've got now you've got the same energy as the rest of us. Now you're normal. <laughs> well, I'm struggling to accept it. I struggle to move on because you can't. It's present every day. Um, the residual effects of the treatment are present every day. So I don't know about other people, but for me, there's no moving on. I mean, I can't just put it behind me and go, and I don't know my outcome yet. Um, you know, I'm working on two years of treatment now, and so we, I don't know where it's going to end up. Right now we're, you know, I've got surgery and radiation and drug therapy all behind me. Now we just got to wait and see. So... There's no moving on. Every morning I wake up, I deal with the effects of it. That said, yesterday, here in Crested Butte, Colorado, we live at 9,000 feet in the mountains. Everybody around here is fit and outdoorsy. And all my buddies are big-time athletes. They've been great. <laughs> We've been going out mountain biking and hiking. And my friend said the other day, I can't believe with the drugs you're on, you're doing this. And I said, I can't imagine not doing this. So I just can't do it at the level I used to do it at, but I can still do it. And so that makes me reflect. Rather than think about living with cancer or what's going to happen next year, just stay in right in the moment and just living right now and dealing with the cancer. We've got to figure it out every day. We're trying to figure out what's going to happen and what we're going to do. But I don't know. That lasts 30 minutes, and then it's like i got stuff to do today. i got to keep moving. If 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 you're defined by your illness in a sense of why me? Why why me instead of all these other people? Boy, that's a pity party and you're gonna be stuck. If you define it as well, this excuse me for saying this, but this sucks. Why why me? And then you get over that in ten or fifteen seconds and say, All right, what do I do about it? And I'll, I'll relate a story. My sons are mountain guides, and they take people all over the world to climb big mountains and ski back down. Um, and, and I was skiing with them, and we were in a very challenging, for me, a very challenging situation. Um, I had a lot of doubt. You know, I look at my sons, and I'm like, I don't think I can do this. And they're like, oh, Dad, you got this. And I remembered saying, I look up and all I see are, and I can't remember if we were in the trees, and all I see are trees or all I see are crevasses here in the glacier. And uh, one of my sons said, hey, Dad, if you look for the crevasses, you're going to go in them. If you look for the trees, you're going to hit them. Mm. You've got to look for the space between them. You've got to look for the openings. You've got to look for what's available to you and go for that. And, oh, my gosh, what a metaphor for your life. What words of wisdom would you say to yourself and why? Jeez, Tino, come on. <laughs> That's a tough question. Everybody has oh, answered this one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'd go back in time and have a conversation with myself. I would say, here's what I would say. Here's what I'd say. Spend more time thinking about other people and less time thinking about yourself. Doing the Ironman is incredibly selfish. The reason I did it three times, I raced seven years and then retired, is it's way too selfish. You have to spend way too much time training alone. I would tell myself, be less centered on things you want for yourself and more centered on other people. 
I welcome to the show the mayor of Vermont's largest city, Miro Weinberger, who gave up a successful and promising career in the private sector to run for mayor of Burlington, Vermont. No, it's not short for anything. It's the whole name, M-I-R-O. And the best way I've come to explain it over the years is it is a function of my parents being in college in Berkeley during the 60s. They were uh, out on the West Coast in school, and my mother uh, heard a mother calling to her son on the street, Moreau, come here, Moreau, and somehow that name just stayed with her, and she remembered it for many years. And when uh, when I was born some years later, uh, they they went with it. I think it served me well in life. I've, I've come to, you know, there were some times during grade school I wasn't, <laughs> wasn't so sure I liked it, but uh, <laughs> from a public service perspective, people remember it. It's unique, so that, that's a good thing. Well, I was born and raised in Vermont. I uh, was born in Brattleboro, Vermont. So it wasn't until I was uh, 18 that I left the state and um, you know, went to college and, and then worked for a while and then ultimately went to graduate school and then moved back to Vermont when I was 32 to start a, start a business. Uh, there was a year after my sophomore year in college, I... Um, you know, took a year off from my studies and did a number of great things. Uh, I got to travel to Alaska I was on a National Outdoor Leadership School course, and I uh, worked for a local television station. And for eight months of that year, I interned in Senator Leahy's office. And uh, what was probably most important about that experience for me is it showed me how, you know, kind of how a real working political government office worked. And it was also very important to me, I think important for me kind of maturing uh, to see a different side of politics, one where party affiliations were not quite so important and where, you know, there was really a lot uh, of, uh, you know, even people that didn't agree with the senator, I sense usually uh, were, you know, motivated by uh, trying to do right for their communities. After Senator Leahy's office, I went back to school, uh, finished uh, my undergraduate degree, and knew I was, you know, for the reasons we've been discussing, interested in in politics and government. And so the first job I had out of school, well, I had a short stint where I was a volunteer for Habitat for Humanity, and that ends up becoming important in my career as well. But I then went back to D.C. and in part because of the relationships that I had uh, established with during the time with the senator, I was able to get a job with the campaign for Senator Harris Wofford from Pennsylvania. And he was in a very difficult race uh, against uh, Rick Santorum. Um, and so for a year, I worked on that campaign. And it was a very hotly contested uh, campaign. I learned a great deal about how campaigns work over the course of that year. Uh, so I kind of had the bug when I finished with that and, and was confirmation of what I had kind of explained to you as a child of, of thinking this was an important and an exciting line of work. Um, but I also at that point, you know, I made a decision that while uh, I still was interested in, in governance and, and politics, uh, that it was important to have a broader perspective than a career um, only in that. And so I then pursued for the next 15 years another interest which uh, is related, but is separate, uh, a career in, in housing and community development. I um, uh, ended up coming back to Vermont and starting my own company that continued to do that kind of work, that worked 
for and with nonprofits in New Hampshire and Vermont, we were just kind of humming as a newly established company in 2008 when the real estate crash happened. And that was, uh, I have to tell you, that was a harrowing time to be in in real estate. Things went wrong that no one had um, really imagined could go wrong. Everyone had some somewhat thought of uh, affordable housing as being something of a, a recession-proof industry because people always need housing. Um, but that recession was deep, and it was deepest in the real estate industry. And uh, there were times during that period uh, where I, frankly, did not know if the company was going to survive, and, and I uh, was not sure um, how I was going to, you know, uh, my personal finances were were in jeopardy. We were just emerging from that period when the Burlington Mayor's race was coming into focus in 2011, and as and and I had throughout this period maintained my interest in in politics and governance. And as that race was coming into focus, it became clear to me, first of all, that the city of Burlington was in real financial trouble. The city had come through that recession uh, in a tough place for as a result of a number of mistakes made back in the late 2000s uh, regarding the airport and regarding uh, Burlington Telecom. And it, w- it was very clear that the mayor at the time was not going to be reelected because of those mistakes. And it was also clear that none of the people who were talking about running really had a financial background. And having lived through the, the real estate crash, um, I knew that I had something to offer to Burlington in working its way out out of those financial problems, and and I didn't think anyone else who was running really uh, had that kind of expertise. So I thought, you know, it's a good time for me to make a transition in my career, um, and it was also a time when I really had something unique to offer to the voters of Burlington. And so I jumped into the race. I think when I think too often when people think about a role in public service, they think about state, state, or federal office, and um, more people should think about local office as a route to making important public contributions. Our institutions, our state and local institutions benefit uh, from having people that come to office. Uh, I think uh, people who have alternative careers should not uh, sell themselves short. They should know that they um, can offer something important uh, to uh, state and local institutions and they um Consider stepping forward because it is a remarkably rewarding um, role to play in any community. People who work with me, I think, feel that we are directly impacting the lives of uh, thousands of people um, every day in the work that we do. And and there's a few more, I think, fulfilling jobs in life than uh, to know that you uh, you are providing that kind of value to the people that you live near. What words of wisdom would you say to yourself? Uh, too many of us spend our 20s and uh, 30s um, concerned and anxious that we're not going to uh, find our calling or um, uh, worried that um, each professional step may not may, might be a misstep. Um, and I did many different things uh, from uh, the time I graduated college uh, uh, till the time I was elected mayor. Uh, it would be nice to be able to go back and, and tell the 26-year-old who uh, was uh, you know, concerned uh, this seemingly eclectic uh, career was actually all going to fit together ultimately <laughs> and that all the things I did during my 20s and 
thirties, uh, has come together in a, in a job that, um, you know, I use, I use that writing skill all the time as mayor, uh, the time, the time that I spent, uh, in front of, uh, community boards advocating for projects has served me, uh, very well. The, 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 the time that I was, a you know, low level staffer for campaigns, uh, ended up being really important. Um, mm. it, um, it would have been reassuring back then. I might've, <laughs> I might've had enjoyed my twenties and thirties, uh, even more <laughs> if, uh, if I had had some confidence that it was all building towards something that made sense. I welcome to the show John and Jen Kimmick, the founders of the Alchemist Brewery and the creators of Hedy Topper, arguably the most famous craft beer in the world. If you're not familiar with the lore of Hedy Topper, it's one of the highest ranked beers in the world on Beer Advocate and RateBeer.com and has been Christian's the best beer in the world. Uh, we met at the Vermont Southern Brewery back in uh, 1995. Uh, I was the head brewer, and Jen had just returned from traveling abroad for a year, and she was working at the brewery in the evenings and working other jobs during the day, and uh, it was love at first sight. I first discovered brewing as a craft when I was in college. I was touring my junior year at Penn State University, and I was home for a weekend, and was hanging out with one of my brother-in-laws and I found his old homebrewing book and just something about it grabbed me and I started reading it and we ended up talking about it and agreeing to brew a batch of beer and two weeks later I came home and he had bought ingredients and so we brewed a batch of beer and that was it. Then I I had found my calling. I mean, it had just grabbed me like nothing else had grabbed me and, you know, I was in business school at Penn State and kind of in the same boat as Jen, uh, knowing that I wanted to be my own boss and, and trying to figure out a way that I was going to make that happen. And brewing presented itself and everything just started to line up and I went back to school and finished my education and kind of had a newfound direction for that last year and a half of school and really made the most of it. And and decided that's it, that was going to be my career. And that's when I moved to Vermont and got my first job brewing and met Jen and set all of this into motion. You know, we moved around the country when we were married. We were in Jackson, Wyoming. We were in Victor, Idaho. You know, we were in Boston for a couple of years. Jen's roots were here in Vermont. There was something that originally drew me to Vermont that, I just loved so much and I missed it terribly being, I mean, Jackson's a beautiful place, but, but I missed Vermont. And when we were in Boston, that's what really set it in motion for us to come back to Vermont because we had actually started looking for locations in and around the city of Boston. And like many times in our relationship, we just follow our gut instinct. And it usually leads us in the right direction. So we came back to Vermont with the idea that we were going to find a place to start a brew pub. And even then, it took us another two years of working crappy jobs and saving money and refining a business plan and, and running numbers and everything, you know, designing menus until we found the right location and 
were able to scrape together enough resources to actually do it. You know, we didn't have a, a, a benefactor that was going to give us a loan to start our dream business when we were 22. You know, we had to earn it. Hmm. And I think I think we are much better off for having gone through it that way than uh, any type of alternative. I mean, you to go through that kind of hardship and to know what it's like to be broke and, and know what it's like to to kind of lose your path, but not never really losing your path. But you know, it's it's hard. You got to fight for it. And we made it happen. You know, we were broke by the time we opened. We spent every penny we had, um, and people would tell us, you know, don't plan on making money the first year. It's going to take five years before you break even. Um, and, but we were out of money, and we thought that was a really um, dumb business plan if you're not going to make money for five years. We knew we had to make money. So the first day when we opened and people were lining up, it was so much weight off of our shoulders. It was mm-hmm. such a relief. And, you know, from that moment, it was just uh, the momentum kept building and building. Um, people were so happy we were there. Thank God, because the day after we opened up the pub, um, we found out we were pregnant. So, you know, it was a wild ride. And, you know, it's not for everyone because you're risking everything. You're putting everything on the line. And we've done that multiple times since we've started our restaurant. You know, just recently we put everything on the line again. You need to be confident in what you're doing. You know, you can't waver and you need to have strong financial plans. You have to have great beer. You need to get the best ingredients. I mean, there's so much to it. You know, you need quality from start to finish, but you also um, need to have guts. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you just need to be tough. After, you know, a number of years, that's when Jen started really putting together the concept of a production brewery. Um, because we, you know, especially Jen, she saw the writing on the wall. And she's like, you know, we're as busy as we can be. Is this it? You know, is this it for the alchemist? This is what the pinnacle of our existence. And, and so it got everybody thinking about what the next thing was going to be. That was a huge decision because we were working seven days a week running this restaurant and brewery. I was brewing all the beer. Jen was on the floor every night pretty much. We didn't want to be uh, washing dishes when we were 70 because the 18-year-old dishwasher blew off work again. We did. We wanted more security than that. You know, we didn't want to have to rely on that. We didn't want all our eggs in one basket. So we moved forward with the production brewery. Um, it took tons of convincing on Jen's part because I was so resistant to just put more work on ourselves but of course in hindsight with the with the history of what has happened to us that changed everything (laughs) i mean you could ask that question of anybody that's a victim of a natural disaster i mean it goes from being business as usual to having the everything turned upside down you know i mean that was our only source of income it was completely put out of commission and 25 people overnight were unemployed. And so that weighed on us tremendously and drove a lot of the decisions that we made. You know, the day after that storm, it was, it was madness. But throughout the whole thing, you know, as bad as it was, we were, we're in the, we were in the middle of the neighborhood. And so every day we see our neighbors that it's not 
kegs of beer and tanks and, and chairs and tables that are ruined. It's everything they own. It's every memory they have, their clothing, their, their keepsakes, and it's all gone, you know? So for us, we always kept it in perspective where it's like, you know, we lost a business, but that, that can be replaced, you know, that can be rebuilt. But so to see everybody else suffering much more, it was, uh, you know, it was a crazy experience, to be sure. It was an incredibly stressful time. Um, it was also an exciting time, though, right? Because we just had this brand-new production brewery that um, that we just opened. And we had put, a, you know, about eight months' worth of um, hard work into getting that little place going. We were over budget. We were past our timeline. Um, our, our funding for that small um, production brewery was totally gone. Um, the only thing that kept us building that and getting it complete that summer was the brew pub, which was so busy. So it was so ironic that the day that our first cans came off the line, we lost the brew pub. And then all of the money that we were taking in at our new production brewery is what funded um, the cleanup and rebuilding of the building where our brew pub was. Oh, wow. We owned at the time. So, you know, it was crazy. We were, we were you know, it was a difficult time. But we didn't have time to, like, be sad and feel sorry for ourselves. We really just had to put our heads down and get to work, and that's what we did. And that's what everyone around us did, um, all of our neighbors, all of our friends, other business owners, not only they're helping us, but helping everyone in the neighborhood. Um, you know, it was kind of one of those things where after it's all done, six months, a year later, you look back and you say, wow, what a crazy time. Yeah. You know, you have a decision. You can either just crawl up and into a ball and cry and throw in the towel or you can just put your head down and work and that's what we did. What words of wisdom would you say to yourself and why? I don't think I'd change a thing because I would probably be someplace totally different now. Yeah. <laughs> My cumulative life experiences have made me who I am and got me where I am so I can't imagine I would, I would ever want to mess with the past. So advice I'd give to my younger self, which I, I think we've followed, but I would give to anyone is really just follow your heart, do what you want to do, and, and go with your gut instinct. We ditch our devices and explore the great outdoors with Angela Gibbons, the founder and director of Earthwalk Vermont, an organization formed to mentor children and families about connecting with the earth. I'd love to include nature, the natural world, as, as the biggest giant in my life, um, as the greatest teacher. And at a very, very young age, I headed to the woods. Uh, I had a tree fort and up in a white pine tree um, in my front yard. And I had a best friend, Mariana, who in my early childhood, we would just explore all day long. and it was really self-exploratory, so I was not uh, officially mentored in what plants are edible and what these tracks are. I was just had the most amazing, like, I feel really privileged to have that opportunity to um, feel completely safe and at home in the natural world at a very, very young age. And uh, that's sort of the root of everything I've done since. My my mission and vision in life is to connect children to the natural world and have them really love this planet as much as or more than I do. 
I do think it's up to us adults to guide the young people. It's a very simple um, sort of solution in the sense of encouraging that time outside and if you can, take the time and sort of fight with TV, social media, what's going on in sort of the daily world today. So it's, it's, it's really about finding that space to fall in love because it doesn't happen in a hurried lunch break every once in a while or a once a year field trip um, at school. Earth Walk Vermont is a nonprofit education organization. Uh, in a simple form, it's a nature school. I sometimes call it a nature mentoring school because I really love the idea of the nature-human connection, particularly. Um, we do run children's programs uh, all year round, but we have a once-a-week school uh, completely out in the forest and fields here in Plainfield on the campus of, of Goddard College. And then we have summer camps that our, uh, people are registering for. We offer a lot of day camps. And then we have uh, an after-school programs, and we have a mentor and training program for teenagers, an apprenticeship, and uh, some adult uh, courses. What we're doing at Earthwalk is it seems and is quite unique to spend a full day learning outdoors. Um, however, that was the way people lived, and they were connected with their families, their elders, their uncles and aunts, and so the people in their community they were deeply connected with, and also to the natural world. Um, they knew where the medicines grew, they knew what food to harvest and when, and when they were cold they knew how to make a fire and um, make a shelter, and those skills uh, we may say they're sort of less needed, and it's something of the past. Um, I think they're very, very pertinent um, in terms of kind of that self-confidence and that resilience of not being afraid and that courage to give as well. It's, it's a reciprocal relationship with the natural world. It's, um, I want to be a really good caregiver of this planet that's really precious. And so um, Earthwalk was really founded on those principles. Long and short of it, I, I really was disoriented talking to adults, and I, I got very discouraged, and it felt very cerebral. I had a, several housemates, and they said, you know, you should be working with children. And they kept sort of pushing that idea, you know, and they thought of a place in California um, that they had friends who that's what they did for a living. It was a residential outdoor education center um, called San Mateo Outdoor Ed near Santa Cruz. And believe it or not, um, I ended up there. And I was a naturalist for two years back in 1987. And a group of inner city kids from like Oakland or South San Francisco would come out to the Redwood Forest for a week as part of their fifth grade. Uh, all fifth graders in the state of California would have a week of outdoor education. I know it was a short amount of time in so many ways, but I think it was pretty life-changing. Um, and so I got to be on the end of um, showing them around the redwoods. We 
take them down to the tide pools and the ocean on the coast, and uh, it changed my life. I, I kind of knew it in the first, really the first day, uh, when 200 kids showed up on buses, and we were their guides. Most of the time we were, you know, barefoot with a guitar around our necks and playing music and inspiring these city kids to sit on the earth. I mean, a lot of them um, didn't want to get their clothes dirty. And by Friday, <laughs> they they were covered in mud or just um, it, it was a, a beautiful experience. From there, I founded an organization in, let's see, 1995, right in Williamstown, Vermont, at a a summer camp that's been around for a long time. It's called Lotus Lake. And it's a place where kids, school kids, come out for field trips. And so I would work with about 3,000 children and teachers each year. What really stood out to me in those 10 years that was um, different or maybe what I was just understanding in my early years was the connection between human and human was worth paying attention to and healing. Uh, I think just that voices are heard, that children are honored for who they are. And it was really around group dynamics um, because you can't just kind of go connect with nature. You know, we're, we're geared towards authority and doing kind of what we're told. I mean, there's some amazing teachers out there. Some still, uh, you know, are telling kids what they need to learn how to learn it, what subject to learn, and uh, I just found it so transformative to really give kids their voices and have them solve problems together and work together, and then the nature connection was just very strong and powerful. With Earthwalk, I was in between, so I had finished Lotus Lake, and I really was looking for an experience where I could really live in my own community and see these children grow up versus getting them on a school bus and saying goodbye to them and hoping for the best. So I certainly had the vision and I went to, it used to be called um, Central Vermont Community Action Council. It's now Capstone. But they had a micro-business development program that was free to people that wanted to start their own business. And I spent time there. I was learning how to make brochures and how to look at a business and look at spreadsheets and how many kids would go the first year and start camp and what would the numbers be, what would they pay, and how we could build in scholarships to those that couldn't afford coming to Earthwalk. And um, just kind of put one foot in front of the other and in a very, very supportive community. Yeah, I think it's much more about um, competence and courage and fearlessness and helpfulness. You know, how can I help my world um, could be the question. It's not sort of like, oh, I'm going to go out into the woods by myself and build a little fire and make a shelter and live out there. <laughs> um, maybe you'll do that for a little while. Uh, but the real idea behind Earthwalk is that we're um, helping to kind of raise uh, the next generation that's needed for real critical change in this world. What words of wisdom would you say to yourself and why? 
you know, what comes to mind right away is, is I love you. You can do anything that you put your heart and mind to and follow your dreams. That comes to mind, and I feel like I, I got that um, from some of my giants I'm standing on. I welcome to the show Stephanie Hobold, a mentor and community and relationship builder focused on strengthening local communities and youths. Um, I am originally from Ohio, and I moved to Vermont in 2006 to work with a campus ministry at the University of Vermont. Uh, I did that for two years, and then after that, moved into the community and the youth mentorship. My mom's family grew up mostly low-income, and and her dad and her mom were both kind of generation changers, not not necessarily where economics is concerned, but where how to raise a family is concerned. So some different kinds of abuses were not uncommon in my mom's family. And so her her parents were generation changers in helping and some of those things. My dad spent a series of years going with his church down to Nicaragua like right after the Civil War and they were starting to rebuild. And uh, he would talk about, again, the brutality and the beauty piece. And I was really young then. I was probably like six, seven, eight. And that stuff just clicked. I just had this very strong sense of justice and things that were wrong and this, and this desire to be a part of bringing things back to you know, the Jewish word for it is shalom, which usually gets translated as peace, but actually is more this idea of wholeness, this idea of the way life was supposed to be. And I, I did get exposed to the idea of community building and uh, community development in high school. From I had a teacher, and she is in Walnut Hills, Cincinnati, and she lived in an intentional community that was focused on learning from the community and that the community has the answers to their own issues, including high drug use and gang activity and other things. That doesn't mean other people from the outside can't be a part of that and don't have things to contribute to that. But they're the ones who've been living those stories. So I got to hang out with her a lot. She mentored me a lot. (laughs) Vermont's unique in this way that there's not these generations uh, like the Old North End, the refugee resettlement really picked up in the last eight years. There's not these generations of people living in these neighborhoods um, like there are maybe in other parts of the country where they know what has worked and what has happened. They know if laws help them or not. They've experienced various forms of racism and prejudice and uh, just downright bigotry from everything from laws to police presence, I mean, you know, today, today, we have these issues with, with police killing uh, the African-American men, and because there's this something under the radar that is subconscious, and so how do we answer those things? So I think systemic oppression is real, and it makes it hard for communities who experience systemic oppression more readily to always provide their own answers but I think they have them. In college, I was involved in a campus ministry group called The Navigators. And after college, I 
join their two-year internship program. And when you do that, they just send you to any university in the country. Um, I got sent to the University of Vermont. So I, for the first two years, uh, met with different students on campus and learned their stories. We talked about life and how to navigate some of the hard things about can about campus life and college life and asking big questions and it's also a time when people are exploring their own stories and both the, the beauties and brutalities of their own story. I was with just working with college students, which is wonderful. But I really enjoy youth and I am from a city and I needed a little bit more cultural diversity, both economically and racially and just interest level. And UVM just wasn't, it wasn't enough. And so I started asking how I could get involved in the community at large and where, if anywhere, was there a more mixed community. And, and so I was like, oh, I should see what's there and what some options could be to be involved outside of campus. So I moved in with a friend of mine, her name's Maria, and to the old North End because the idea was if I'm if we're going if I'm going to be involved with the community, I want to I want whatever the issues of the community are to be mine as well. And if I live on the hill section of Burlington, I don't have the same issues that somebody in the old North End does. I don't get to experience the school issues. I get to experience heavier police traffic. I get to experience heavier drug traffic, and also just the camaraderie of being in a community that values neighborliness. So I figured if we're going to do this, I want to move in. And so the question that Maria and I decided to move in with was, what if we moved into this neighborhood and what would happen if we were good neighbors? And what that meant was that we would be people of empathy, that we would be people who were curious, that we would uh, ask questions, and try not to assume, but also be open to feedback and open to folks maybe challenging our worldview or the way we would do something. So after we moved to a new city, we started doing something called family dinner. And on Sunday night, we would invite our entire uh, street and neighborhood, basically anybody that we saw, to come over for dinner. And we would line up these tables in, the, in our driveway so that everybody could see us, and we would just eat dinner. And so you'd ha we'd have multiple generations, we would have multiple languages and religions and ethnicities all at this one table. Like, how can we, with great differences, but also really great similarities, how can we engage one another and be present with one another and ask questions? Uh, what words mm -hmm. of wisdom would you say to yourself? Like just be a learner. Just choose to learn. Choose to ask questions. I don't have to impress anybody. And it's okay if you look or feel completely stupid. You'll learn. Eventually you'll learn. Hey, listener. Just one more quick thing. Do you enjoy following the show or were there moments that you found inspiring or instructive? Can you think of anyone, a friend, coworker, or a family member who might appreciate this moment? If so, take a second to share the podcast with them. Tell them about it. 
direct them to the podcast Facebook page by just searching for On the Shoulders of Giants podcast in the Facebook search field, or direct them to my website, tcrutanira.com. Or lastly, just show them how to subscribe in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast feed, because we all grow when good ideas and messages are shared.